Welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. Well, good morning and happy Labor Day weekend. Now, Labor Day has always felt like a throwaway holiday for me. Certainly, I appreciated a day off from school or work. But beyond that, it bore no connection points for me. In fact, I realized preparing for today that I knew very little about it beyond that it had something to do with labor unions, which meant nothing to someone who grew up in rural Iowa. It was the unofficial end of summer, and you weren't supposed to wear white after Labor Day, which is no longer a thing. Consequently, I'm wearing white. (laughs) A little quick research informed me the idea of Labor Day first became public in 1882 when some unions in New York City decided to have a parade to celebrate their members. This parade inspired other unions, and by 1887, Oregon, Massachusetts, New York, New Jersey, and Colorado made Labor Day a state holiday. President Grover Cleveland signed an act in 1894 establishing the federal holiday, but most states had by then already put it in place. Now, I could go on with more random facts, like it's the unofficial end of hot dog season, so go eat a hot dog. But probably, like me, none of these tidbits of history have done anything to boost your emotional connection to this day. We live in 2022, and most of us take decent working conditions for granted. But consider this. In 1882, one of the largest employers, the steel mills, often required a seven-day work week. Imagine 12-plus-hour shifts day after day after day until you either died or your body gave up. Employees in all industries were not entitled to vacation, sick leave, unemployment compensation, or even reimbursement for injuries suffered on the job. And injuries were abundant. And not just injuries. An average of 675 laborers were killed in work-related accidents each week. Wages were so low that most families could not survive unless... Everyone held a job, and this included children sometimes as young as five years old. For these people, the good old days were anything but good. Labor Day for folks who lived hand-to-mouth in such uncertain times meant hope of providing for their families without continual fear. It meant freedom to grow and advance and become more. Work could be more than just uncertain survival. Perhaps they could even one day revel in the words of Proverbs 123. All hard work brings a profit because maybe it would. That would be something to celebrate, a true Labor Day. See, work is part of life. For many, work is the difference between life and death. And believe it or not, we were made to work. We were created for work. Genesis 2.15, then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. 
Adam and Eve were placed in the garden, not on an endless vacation, but to tend it, work it. Psalms 90, 17, may the kindness of our Lord, our God, be upon you and confirm for you the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. Work in the Bible is assumed. Those who don't work or take advantage of others are called out. Work is associated with life and with good because God is a God of work. And we, the work of his hands, have the privilege of joining him in the tasks. Deuteronomy 32.4, he is the rock. His works are perfect and all his ways are just. Psalm 8, 3 and 4, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you think of him? And a son of man that you are concerned about him. We all work at something. Some of us have jobs and careers. Some are students who work at learning. Some have lost their employment and do the work of looking for work. Some are retired or disabled, but none are totally free from the work that is life. Truth be told, we all work at something. Even those filthy rich who have the choice of what they do with each day still must work at maintaining an image and sustaining their lifestyle. All work is not created equal, but we all work. And that is meant to be a good thing. It is how we were created. Sometimes work can be amazingly fulfilling, like leaving a sparkling clean bathroom before you see your four and six-year-old boys headed into it. <laughs> Ecclesiastes 3, 12 and 13 talks about this. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every person who eats and drinks sees good in all their labor. This is the gift of God. Sometimes one is given the beautiful gift of getting paid for their passion. I felt like that when I first began to work with children. But this isn't true for everyone. I suspect there are many sitting here today who go to a job each day with little fulfillment. Work is an income at best and drudgery at worst. And you are not alone. In fact, most in the world wouldn't even consider that work should bring satisfaction other than their wages. To make a living wage is their dream. And even when you have the dream job, when everything has fallen into place, there are times when work isn't that fun. It is work to work. You see, work, by its very nature, is at times hard. It is repetitive. It can be monotonous. Even for the most creative, there are things that must be done again and again, like cleaning that bathroom. Every job has its four- and six-year-old boys. Part of working, no matter what you are working at, means coming to grips with the reality that there is no perfect job. Work is work. Even that coveted retirement comes with a certain degree of work. 
Am I seeming to contradict myself here? We are created by a good God, his workmanship to work, but work is hard. Where is the hope? Perhaps you may need to find a different job to get new training. Maybe this is needed for your mental health. Sometimes that is the case if work seems to be killing you. But for many of us, the hope comes not in our actual jobs, whether they are taking care of small children or running a multi-million dollar corporation. Our hope comes in how we enter our work. You see, work is a calling. We hear this word used for pastors and missionaries sometimes, some talk of receiving a call from God. But we rarely hear this word used for work outside of Christian ministry. But I want to challenge that. We've been on a delightful journey of discovering what life of joining God on mission can be. With Sean Young's leadership, some in the missional learning group are exploring living on mission each day. Many of you are discovering living out your faith in new and exciting ways. And I want to say to you, what if that is your work, your real work? Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. We are called to join God in what he's already up to, what he has prepared in advance for us to do. The passage we read this morning describes two kinds of lives. One is dead to Christ, following the ways of the world and of the kingdom of the air. Ephesians 2.3, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. A description of work for some, or at least what they think work should be. If we make enough money to buy what we want, to do whatever we choose, if we find the right career that fulfills our wants, then we will be happy. Yet we live in constant dissatisfaction when our jobs or our life circumstances don't gratify the cravings of our desires and thoughts. I read an article in HealthWire called Why Suicide is More Common Among Celebrities, CEOs, and creatives. Shouldn't these at the top of their game, wildly successful by the world's standards, be fulfilled? Alive? The article recounted that instead of bringing them happiness and freedom, for many being sought after, rich, and at the top of their game, leads to an identity crisis and ruminations on their self-worth. I find that sobering, don't you? I fear that both looking to our work for fulfillment or simply enduring work in hopes of a better life after death will leave us empty, dead inside. This is not the life to which we are called. But there is another life, alive in Christ described here. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. 
It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. This is life alive in Christ. A life centered in God's love and mercy. We are raised up by grace. It saves us. It's not work that saves us. It's God's love and grace. And because of this, his work of salvation, because we are his handiwork, we are created for, called to, Good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. I love Eugene Peterson's message version of Romans 12.1. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life. And place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Our work. Our lives are a calling and that can happen wherever you are, whatever you do. I wish I could bring so many of you to the stage today to tell your story. Because you understand this and are doing your work better than I ever will. Kathy Jacobs who in retirement walks alongside women in her retirement community who have lost their husbands. Alex and Dave Burns, a school nurse and high school history teacher who demonstrate God's love to students who are hurting every day. Cheryl, who we just prayed for, who, is giving of, who will be giving of herself daily to care for her aging parents. Kelly Vaccaro, who loves on both the children in her daycare center and her employees in ways that awe me. We have nurses and people at Intel and construction workers and lawyers and financial planners who are both being Christ to those they work with and seeing Christ in those around them. Among you are young mothers and fathers who sacrifice and surrender and persevere day and night For little ones who have no idea of the cost. Yet they have embraced their calling for this time in their lives. And God is there. With us are retired men and women. Who serve in countless ways and love their communities. And share God's love tirelessly. And students who proclaim the good news through their lives at school each day. You should be the ones up here today. Happy Labor Day, my friends, and know that your labor is not in vain. Last spring, in a way of life group, which is year two of the journey you've often heard us talk about, we read this book. It's called God in the Alley, Being and Seeing Jesus in a Broken World. It's a beautiful book written by Greg Paul, who lives and serves in the inner cities of Toronto. It's filled with tender stories of how he has learned to not only be the presence of Jesus to the hurting, but see the presence of Jesus in some of the most unlikely places. 
It was eye-opening to me. Being the presence of Jesus to those God brings into our life is something I think most of us know we should be and many of us long to be. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, John 1.14. To be God's presence, we must first be fully present with those God brings into our lives. As God sent his son to be among us, our capacity to be the presence of Jesus will require that we be sent to our worlds and that we learn to truly be among the people there. This can be hard work, can't it? Letting go of the separation and truly being, dwelling among them. And we can't do it alone. We shouldn't do it alone. We will need continual communion with Christ, the indwelling of his spirit, and the presence of others to remind us of the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Otherwise, burnout and withdrawal are guaranteed. But there is more. Another aspect of this calling that will sustain us. I am not only just to be the presence of Jesus, but to see the presence of Jesus in those I am among. The second point was one I hadn't thought much about. Of course, I'd heard of folks like Mother Teresa who saw the face of Jesus in the poor and diseased. But to see Jesus in each being who comes into my life is not so natural for me. And yet I instinctively knew this was just as important as being the presence. And this is what would sustain me in the hard work. I'd like to end this time and lead into communion today where we are invited so beautifully into the presence of Jesus by closing with a story from this book, God in the Alley. This is the first story in the book, the story of Neil. Neil was a gay man dying of AIDS who Greg felt called to build a relationship and share the good news of Jesus with. It hadn't gone as planned. No miraculous conversion. And Neil is nearing death. One morning, I was driving by a street around 10 o'clock when I felt impelled to drop in on him. Just for 10 minutes, I told myself. As usual, letting myself through his back gate, I prayed for the opportunity to talk to him about Jesus. Then I went in and read the note the nurse had left on the kitchen counter. There was nothing unusual, and the nurse had signed out at 7 that morning. I climbed the stairs to his room. The room was hot, humid, and ripe as a mushroom factory. The cat was curled up in the window sill, looking disdainful. And Neil was writhing in soundless panic in the bed, half sitting up, his pajama bottoms and The bed sheets wound around his ankles, his split spindly arms flailing in a futile effect to free himself, a look of sheer terror on his face. He had soiled himself, and it was everywhere. He was disoriented and uncertain where he was or what was happening to him. 
only the feet needed to be washed. This moment was what my whole time with Neil had been for. This was what it meant to be the presence of Christ. I had been looking for opportunities to preach, wanting to affect clear and possibly dramatic conversion. I realized in that moment that my longing for those things was as much or more an indication of my desire to be successful as they were of my passion for Neil's soul. It became clear that being Jesus to Neil, while it certainly meant praying for him and announcing the good news to him, was most perfectly summed up by this mundane and even odious task of gently wiping excrement from his foot. At the same time, I was deeply touched by his profound vulnerability. His foot was bare, and he hadn't even enough strength left in his ruined body to lift it and put it back under the covers. The words of Jesus were ringing in my ears. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. This, too, was my purpose of my time with Neil. I had been seeing him as someone upon whom I could practice my own imitation of Christ and had missed the presence right before me. I recognized that Neil was, at that moment, a physical representation to me of a vulnerable and dying Christ. Jesus was allowing me to clothe him and look after him by caring for his brother. After a quick moment or two, trying to assimilate these powerful impressions, I asked Neil if, I would, if he would like me to pray for him. Yes, I'd like that, he whispered. I prayed first. I had no idea what I said. When I was done, I thought Neil might have fallen asleep. But then he spoke, whispered into the stillness of that room. He didn't address his prayers to anyone, just spoke. And the words he spoke were words of blessing upon me. He knew he was dying, yet he asked nothing for himself. Instead, he blessed me. Then he was so quiet and still, I thought again that he might have drifted off. But he spoke once more without opening his eyes. And his voice this time was clear and surprisingly strong. In the name of Jesus. Will you pray with me? Precious God, your works are wonderful. We know that full well. Thank you for making us your handiwork and inviting us to join you in the good work which you prepared in advance for us to do. Open our eyes now to those things that we have placed as more important than you and the true work you have called us to. Forgive us for looking for fulfillment in places that are not of you. May we experience afresh your presence at this table and fill us, we pray, until we overflow with your love and power.